RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 269, Emissary. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, Emissary, the one where the Enterprise literally drops us off on Deep Space Nine. John's got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first... A word from Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships collection. This is the classic collection of teeny tiny starships. The ones that are perfect for building your own fleet. Maybe on a desk. Maybe on a shelf. Maybe just to whoosh around the living room when nobody's looking. Whoosh. Nicely done, Ken. Nice whoosh. Thank you. These are officially authorized by CBS Studios. The official Star Trek Starships collection is available only from Eagle Moss Collection. This is the ultimate collection. The ultimate collection. Of vessels from across the Star Trek universe, from the original series to Deep Space Nine, all the way to Star Trek Beyond and Beyond. Each model is cast in a specially formulated metallic resin and hand-painted with reference to the actual CG models used in production and, where they exist, photos of the original studio models as well. Each ship also comes with a display base, plus a collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of the technology on board. So remember, these are teeny tiny. These are like three to four inches, and you can subscribe to the collection today to receive your first ship, the USS Enterprise NCC-1701D. <laughs> As seen flying away from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> and that was a tiny Enterprise flying away. It was. From Deep Space well, Nine. Deep Space Nine's pretty big. It's pretty big. But on my screen, yeah. on my screen, that was a tiny Enterprise. So you can get that for only $4.95 with free shipping. You can reenact your own moment of the Enterprise flying away from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> just pitch it across the room. Like, just, just throw it. Previously on Deep Space Nine and then yeah. just like hurl your Enterprise D. Don't do that, by the way. That's not the, that's not the best way to treat them. So additional models, and there are already over a hundred of them, will ship twice monthly and are delivered directly to your door. As a subscriber, you're also entitled to free gifts worth over $90, and you can cancel your subscription at any time. Full details on that can be found at the website, which we'll be telling you again in just a moment. Now, if you don't like the whole subscription thing, if you want to pick and choose your individual ships, maybe you want to you know, build ships from a specific time or from a specific series or something like that, you can do that. Like you could, you could build your own DS9 uh, collection with things like the Bajoran Solar Sailor and the Cardassian Galore class, or or Deep Space Nine itself, for that matter. Uh, you can do all of that for a few dollars extra per ship. 
either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or hit up your local comic shop to see if uh, to see if they carry these fine ships. But if you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at st-starships.com slash mission log. So remember, start out with the Enterprise D for $4.95 and then enjoy the surprise of getting two ships monthly delivered directly to your door. That address again, st-starships.com slash mission log. And thank you once again to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at rottenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, You know, brand new series. We haven't even Mm -hmm. talked about the fact, brand new series. People may have noticed when they started the show, they may have thought to themselves, I I must have loaded up the wrong show because this is brand new music. Well, it's because (laughs) we're doing a brand new series. Uh, about which I feel certain almost no trivia has been collected. Nope, not at all. Yeah, so let's just go into the recap. Act one. <laughs> Hang on. All right. We're just kidding. All right, uh, let's kick off Deep Space Nine with, uh, with a collection of familiar names. So, this episode, Emissary, was written by Michael Piller and Rick Berman. They both get the story credit here. The script was by Michael Piller, and it was directed by David Carson. Now, David, we got to know a little bit on Next Gen. He directed The Enemy and Yesterday's Enterprise, as well as Redemption 2 and The Next Phase. So we're kicking off the series here. Why don't we try to put some of this in context? Emissary premiered on January 3rd, 1993. So to understand that in our journey, Ken and our listeners, on Next Gen, we had just seen Chain of Command Parts 1 and 2, and a few weeks later, we would see Ship in a Bottle. That's where it falls within that season of Next Gen. This episode was nominated for four Emmy Awards, uh, including visual effects, art direction, sound editing, and sound mixing. But let's talk about the premise. What led us to this point? So we all know that Star Trek had been pitched as a wagon train to the stars, um, going back to the original series. And then a lot of that DNA stayed when we went into the next generation. Now, this was very much the opposite kind of Western. This was the Rifleman. At least that's how they discussed it in developing Deep Space Nine. The setting is the physical location and guests wander into town, as it were, like they would do on an old Western. Now, this was the directive from Brandon Tartikoff. Tartikoff got in touch with Rick Berman and laid out the plan for a show that would overlap with TNG for about a year and a half uh, before TNG then went off the air. Now, Rick Berman knew that he wanted Michael Piller to help flesh it out, so they set to work. And they had planned to start shooting around the late summer of 1992. Now, about Gene Roddenberry. (laughs) So, Gene, as we know, passed away in late 1991. So, according to Michael Piller and Rick Berman, Gene was aware that they were working on a new show. However, 
he really wasn't involved in it at all. He didn't know the details. He just knew that Star Trek would carry on. There would be more Star Trek after Next Gen. So truly, this is the dividing line of new Star Trek developed after Gene Roddenberry. It's actually weird uh, weird to me to hear Brendan Tartikoff's name in there because I think of him as, what, like 80s, like late 70s to mid 80s NBC is where I think of Tartikoff. Yeah, he was heavily identified with NBC. I mean, it, it, so much so that he was a guest star sometimes on NBC shows. He appeared on Saturday Night Live right. when he was working at NBC. But... By 1991, he had left NBC and moved over to Paramount and became the the chairman at Paramount. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, he he wasn't there super long, but uh, that's where he was at the time. And, um, you know, Brandon Tartikoff, for maybe some people who are listening, he was one of these big figures in entertainment at this very high level, you know, studio executive and, uh, you know, well-respected, well-liked in the industry and passed away at the very young age of 48. Um, and, and you just know that he would have done and developed so much more uh, had he lived longer. But uh, that's a little, little nutshell about uh, Brendan Tartikoff there. So, with the show in development, uh, they assembled a team, and uh, like I said, some of that team we already know and are familiar with, and you had Rick Berman, and you had Michael Piller, you had Joe Minoski early on, and uh, let's also talk about some of the design and on-screen look of the show. Well, Herman Zimmerman, production designer, was tasked to create the look of Deep Space Nine, and his directive was to make it bizarre and dark. And let me tell you, that multi-layer set for Deep Space Nine was huge. He said they actually had a bigger budget in his department here than on Star Trek VI. <laughs> so quite the budget, yeah, to do uh, to do the interior sets and the production design that he needed to do. And speaking of those sets, so uh, kind of the center of DS9, you have Quark's Bar and you have like, basically a three-story set. Um very interesting way to build this. So most of the time on TV, and particularly with Star Trek, what you do is you build the set, and then you move in a lighting rig that is separate from the set, and you just kind of move that around to light whatever you need to shoot. Well, they didn't do that with this. Um, So director of photography, Marvin Rush, who I've talked about before, uh, said that when he and Herman were talking about building the set, they wanted to have a lot of practical on-screen lights. And you see that pretty much everywhere. You have these bright, hot lights that are part of the set to give you a lot of contrast and kind of that film noir look where you have a lot of shadows and then interrupted by bright lights. So when they built Quarks, practically everything there is, well, what we would call a practical. It is a light that is actually part of the set. And that gives the DP a lot of freedom because then he can move that camera around wherever he wants and shoot at any angle that he wants. You don't have to worry about moving a lighting rig around to fit where you want the camera to be. So it's a unique way to create the look of this series. And that is directly influenced by how the series was technically created. Now, we have some outdoor location scenes, a lot of location scenes in this episode. But what I'd like to point out is uh, where we meet Jake fishing. Well, that was shot at Golden Oak Ranch, a.k.a. the Disney Ranch. 
Now, that company has owned the area. Now it's more than 800 acres that they own, but they bought the original plot back in 1959. It's about an hour north of L.A., and it has been used in, well, everything. There are a lot of deleted scenes. There was a ton of material that was shot for this that didn't make it. In fact, there's more than 20 minutes worth of material that was excised. Uh, But it's worth pointing out, you had a little bit of reuse of footage from the best of both worlds, but you had a lot of new effects shot uh, that was created for this episode. You had tons of uh, uh, miniature work, new stuff done for the Battle of Wolf 359. In fact, they created over 200 effects shots for this one episode of Deep Space Nine. Let's talk about the cast a little bit. Deep Space Nine Emissary starring not Michelle Forbes. (laughs) So we had talked about her before as Ensign Rowe on Next Gen, and we had mentioned that moving over to Deep Space Nine, the production really wanted her character and wanted her to be a part of this new show. But she decided not to take the role. Uh, But there's a lingering effect of the production's desire to have that character that's why this show is set in orbit of Bajor. Because they wanted Michelle Forbes? Because they wanted Michelle Forbes as Ensign Rowe. Wow. As, well, as Rowe Laren right. by this time, not Ensign Rowe. <laughs> but yes, they had actually planned the show around her, or at least you know a significant enough portion of the show. Um, and that's why the show exists there. Because they, they could have put Deep Space Nine anywhere. But they decided that it would be at Bajor because they wanted to carry on with this Bajoran character. So then the part of Major Kira Mm -hmm. is played by not Michelle Forbes. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) should we tell people how we're going to do this, actually? Because you and I talked about it briefly before the show, before we started recording. Yeah. Not going to do like, I mean, and it's easy for me to explain because I don't have to do any of it anyway. (laughs) But rather than doing 45 minutes here about every character, you've actually almost got like a trading card aspect uh, that you're thinking about doing this for or the way you're thinking about doing this. A trading card or people just subscribe for uh, 10 bucks a month and I'll I'll send them a new bio (laughs) in the mail. Nice. Right. um, Well, look, one of our listeners asked if we were going to do a bio for everyone in the cast. And uh, honestly, we haven't done that in previous series. I think when we started with the original series, we just thought, well, it's the original series. You got Shatner, you got Nimoy, you got D. Kelly. Go, (laughs) you know, Um But it might be interesting to go through over the next few weeks and highlight one of the main cast at a time. So that's what we'll do. I've picked one this week, Avery Brooks. Why not start there? And then as you listen for the next few weeks, we'll get through the rest of the main cast in addition to the guest stars. So this week, Avery Brooks is Commander Ben Sisko. Avery is from Indiana, and his background is in music because his family is just full of musicians, uh, and his background is also quite heavily influenced by theater. Probably no surprise there. He has played just about everything on stage, including turns at Shakespeare, like playing Oberon and Theseus. And uh, he played Paul Robeson in the play Paul Robeson. So also an excellent way to stretch the acting and musical muscles. Uh, Side note there, if you've ever seen him at a convention, he 
may just hop up on stage if there's a piano and uh, and dabble and and just not leave the stage if he feels like playing the piano. I've seen him do that. Um, and if you saw uh, the Captain's uh, documentary that William Shatner produced, he does a lot of musical uh, uh, tinkering in that as well. That truly seems to be one of his passions. Now, the bulk of his on-screen acting career comes before Deep Space Nine. Uh, he was in the film American History X. He had a feature role on Spencer for Hire, where he played Hawk, which then led to the series A Man Called Hawk. Ken, that one's for you. Thank you very much. That's our ninth podcast, I think, after the other eight podcasts. Oh, that's great. Oh, I yeah. can't wait. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. So let's talk about those guest stars. Very briefly, we do meet Rom and Nog, played by Max Gradenchik and Aaron Eisenberg, respectively. We'll have more out of them later. J.G. Hertzler is the Vulcan captain in this. Now, this is a name familiar to Trek fans, but this is the first time we are encountering him. J.G. was born in Georgia, and he had a recurring role in the 1990s TV series Zorro before we saw him here. He's been a teacher and even dabbled in politics, serving in a position on the Ulysses New York Town Board when he is not on screen or on stage. Uh, let's see. We have a guest star, Patrick Stewart. You might be vaguely familiar with his work. Yes, he's here playing the dual roles of Captain Picard and Locutus. We have Camille Saviola as Kai Opaka. She started her on-screen work in the early 80s. A few interesting standouts include Adam's Family Values and Penn and Teller Get Killed. She has just a few appearances in Deep Space Nine as Kaiopaka, and those are her only Trek credits. Felicia Bell as Jennifer. Felicia has had recurring TV series work in Nightman and General Hospital. A DS9 might be her only Trek credit, but we will see her again in this series a few more times as Jennifer. And finally, Mark Alimo as Gull Dukat. Now, we've definitely mentioned Mark before, so here's a quick refresh. He appeared on track in Next Gen's Lonely Among Us, but actually got a credit the next time around in the neutral zone as Romulan. He was Gull Masset in The Wounded and then turned up again in Time's Arrow. But Gull Dukat seems to be where he really sticks. This is the first of many appearances we'll get out of Mark Alimo in that role in Deep Space Nine, and just one appearance in a very different guise until we get to that, and that's spread out over the next six seasons. Where be the puppies? The dolphins? Is there an arboretum? Much has changed in our move to Deep Space Nine. It's the Battle of Wolf 359, and Benjamin Sisko's ship, the Saratoga, is not faring well. He gets his young son, Jake, out of the wreckage, but Ben's wife, Jennifer, doesn't make it. From an escape pod, he watches the ship with his wife aboard explode, lost to an attack led by the Borg, Locutus, who you may know better as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Three years later, Ben is taking over his new post with Jake. Jake's not excited, but Ben tries to put a positive spin on it. They'll be living on Deep Space Nine, in orbit around Bajor. Act 1. The Federation is on DS9 at the request of Bajor's provisional government. They'd like a little backing against the Cardassians, who have just withdrawn their occupation forces. The Cardassians trashed Deep Space Nine before leaving. A lot of civilians lost everything in the transition and plan to leave the station as well. 
Chief Engineer Miles O'Brien, formerly of the Enterprise, is overseeing reconstruction. As Cisco and O'Brien toured the facility, Cisco is stopped by a religious-sounding Bajoran. He asks Ben to come with him. The prophets await, he says. Ben replies, maybe some other time. O'Brien says Picard would like to see Cisco as well. Yeah, that can wait too. Cisco meets Major Kara, attaché between the Federation and Bajor. She doesn't think the Federation should be there. She's been fighting the Cardassians since she was a kid. They're finally rid of them, and the provisional government calls in a new occupying force first thing. Cisco says the Federation is there to help, and he specifically requested a Bajoran national as his first officer. This exposition interrupted by more exposition. We meet Odo, the odd-looking fellow. He and Kira and Cisco are converging on the site of a break-in on the promenade. One of the thieves is a young Ferengi, Nog, nephew of Quark, who used to run the local casino. Quark asks for lenience for the boy. They were just leaving tomorrow anyway, but Sisko says that won't be possible and has Nog sent to the brig. Also, Odo's a shapeshifter. We found that out in the struggle. A call from O'Brien. Captain Picard would really like to see Sisko. Let's hope he's cool seeing him surly. Act 2. Aboard the Enterprise, Picard is all smiles. For about three seconds. Sisko lays it straight out. Yes, they have met before. At the Battle of Wolf 359. Picard's shaken, but he'll press on with the meeting. The Cardassian occupation has crippled Bajor. Picard would like to see the Bajorans admitted to the Federation, and it's Sisko's job to do everything in his power, short of violate the Prime Directive, to make that happen. Sisko's not into the assignment, though. This is not a great place to raise his son, which he's doing by himself, thank you very much, Picard. He's thinking of quitting Starfleet. Picard says he'll look into finding a replacement for Sisko, and with that, the super short, super tense meeting is over. Back on Deep Space Nine, Sisko has a proposal for Quark. You stay here and run your establishment, and I'll drop the charges against Nog. If Quark stays, others will stay and the station will have a chance. Or, you know, Nog can spend the next several years of his life in a Bajoran prison. Quark's call. Cleaning up another part of the station, Sisko and Kira talk over the state of Bajoran affairs. If the provisional government folds, and she thinks it will, Bajor will erupt in civil war. Only the Bajoran spiritual leader, Kaiopaka, can stop that. And with that, it's time for Sisko to meet Kaiopaka. So says the odd religious fellow from Act 1. Act 3. On Bajor, Sisko meets Opaka and sees the tear of the prophet. It's a glowy thing, and it zaps Sisko to another time, another place. It's Ben's first meeting with his wife, Jennifer. Of course, his familiarity seems weird to her, since as far as she knows, they've never met before. But he woos, and he wows, and they make a date. Just as the tear of the prophet brings him back to his proper place in time on Bajor with Kaiopaka. Opaka has nine orbs like the one Sisko's just seen have appeared in the skies over Bajor over the past 10,000 years. The Cardassians took the other ones. Now, Sisko has to find the Celestial Temple before the Cardassians do. If they find it, they'll destroy it. And so... Opaka gives Sisko the glowy thing, tells him to find the prophets, and warn them. Only then can she unite her people. 
Also, he needs to do it for himself. Act 4. Back aboard Deep Space Nine, Kira calls Cisco to the promenade. Quarks is once again open for business. And business is booming. Cisco's plan may have legs. And now let's meet some new characters. There's the wet-behind-the-ears doctor, Julian Bashir, and Dax, a trill. Dax and Cisco go way back, though things have changed. The 300-plus-year-old trill was an old man the last time Cisco saw them. Now, she's a late 20-something woman. Cisco puts Dax to work deciphering the mystery of the Bajoran orbs, and Dax gets an orb treatment similar to the one Cisco got earlier. She's taken back to the time that she joined with Dax. It's a trill thing. In the medical bay, Dr. Bashir is putting his foot in it with Kira. He's talking about frontier medicine, working in the wilderness. Yes, yeah, says Kira, that's my home you're talking about. You're kind of a jerk. Bye. On the Enterprise, O'Brien is having one last look around and a quick goodbye with Picard. O'Brien beams down to Deep Space Nine... And the Enterprise is off on an adventure. We usually go with them on those, don't we? Act 5. On screen at Deep Space Nine, it's a Cardassian ship. Gull Dukat is requesting permission to drop in and welcome the station's new crew. Dukat used to run Deep Space Nine for the Cardassians. So everybody is really excited to have him back. The words in the meeting are friendly, though each is laced with menace. Also, Dukat has had his feelers out. He knows that Cisco went to see Kaiopaka, and he knows that Cisco brought back an orb. Maybe they could exchange information? Cisco denies all of it, of course, but Dukat says, should Cisco change his mind, the Cardassians will be around. Like on the promenade, actually, eating, drinking, and being Cardassian. Checking in with Dax, she wants to know what Cisco knows about the Denoris belt. Kind of dangerous, though Dax says she found a story of a 22nd century Kai whose ship got stuck there for a few days. The heavens opened up and took the Kai's ship in. Also, five of the orbs were found there. Cisco and Dax will head there, though they have to find a way to sneak past the Cardassians first. It involves subterfuge and teching the tech. Kieran O'Brien closed down Quark's. The Cardassians gambling there are annoyed, but they're also winning. Quark gives them a bag to take their winnings back to their ship. Unbeknownst to them, that bag is the shape-shifting security officer, Odo. Once aboard the Cardassian ship, he's able to disable the Cardassian sensors, allowing Dax and Sisko to sneak away undetected and allowing Odo to beam back to Deep Space Nine. Act 6. The heavens have opened up and taken in Dax and Sisko's ship. On Deep Space Nine, it just looks to them like they're gone. In their ship, sensors are offline. They have no idea where they are. Then, they're in space again. In the Gamma Quadrant, 70,000 light years from Bajor. Sisko thinks it's a wormhole, perhaps the first stable wormhole known to exist. To prove it, they go back through. Only this time, they're being stopped inside the wormhole. And it's bright outside. And there's atmosphere capable of supporting life. And they've landed. 
exiting, Dax is wowed by the idyllic paradise that they've found, and Sisko is horrified by the hellscape on which he's standing. They can see each other as they are, though the surroundings they see are very different. But they do both see the orb. They're being probed. Sisko introduces himself, and he and Dax are zapped for their trouble. Dax disappears, and Sisko... Well, Sisko may be tripping. Back on Deep Space Nine, the wormhole is opened up again, and the orb is coming through. Beaming it aboard, the orb releases Dax onto the transporter pad. Back in his trip, Sisko is talking to some unknown life forms, though they're communicating through people Sisko knows. Jake, Jennifer, Kaiopaka, Captain Picard. They don't get people. They don't really get time. This could take a while. Deep Space Nine is planning a rescue mission for Cisco, but first they have to figure out what the deal is. Dax says she thinks the wormhole is not natural, but constructed. Whoever made the orbs may have made that. Of course, the Cardassians have picked up on all the activity and they're moving towards it. So, Kira and O'Brien come up with a plan. They will move Deep Space Nine to the mouth of where the wormhole was, blocking Cardassian access. O'Brien says it'll take months. Kira says they need to do it by tomorrow. She and Bashir and Dax make ready to enter the wormhole themselves, and Odo insists on coming with them as well. He was found in the Denarius system, the only one of his kind. The answers to who he is may be in the wormhole. So he'll be coming along as well. Act 7. The aliens are debating what to do with Sisko. They think they should kill him, though he says he's there answering their call. They say they seek life, not corporeal beings that try to destroy them. So he tells them about experiences, humanity, time. They don't get the whole linear thing. What was and is and will be are the same. So he explains linear time and his linear existence. Back on Deep Space Nine, O'Brien is working on whether they'll be able to move the space station to where the wormhole was... Uh, Of course they can, and they do. On the runabout, Kira and Odo are trying to talk Gul Dukat out of heading into the wormhole. Of course, he thinks it's a trick that Sisko is in the wormhole negotiating for technology and an alliance, and so he and his will keep going. Back in the wormhole, the aliens are having a really tough time with the linear time thing. They start to get it. Good feelings, pleasure... So why does Cisco exist primarily in the moment when he lost Jennifer at Wolf 359? Cisco says it's a difficult memory. He doesn't want to be here. So, asked the aliens, why do you exist here? Now he's the one that doesn't understand. This communication interrupted by a bad reaction from the wormhole to the arrival of the Cardassians. And the way for Kira and crew is shot. Act 8 not surprisingly, the aliens talking to Cisco are upset by the arrival of the Cardassians. They've closed the wormhole. Every time someone comes through, the existence of the aliens is disrupted. Cisco explains. They use past experiences to figure out their ways forward. They seriously aren't there to hurt the aliens. Though he has to confess, they don't know for sure what's to come. They use past experience to figure out the way forward and do their best. Through the game of Baseball, Cisco is finally able to make them understand. 
The game would not be worth playing if they knew how it was going to end. It is the unknown that gives value to Cisco's existence. Constantly searching, not just to answer to their questions, but for new questions. They are explorers. They explore their lives, and they explore the galaxy, trying to expand the boundaries of their knowledge. And that is why Cisco's there, not to conquer, but to coexist and to learn. So, the aliens ask, why does Cisco exist at Wolf 359? Back at Deep Space Nine, three Cardassian ships are on their way, likely looking for Dukat, who is lost in the wormhole. Of course, the Cardassians don't buy DS9's story. They demand the surrender of Deep Space Nine, giving Kira one hour to make arrangements. Act 9. Of course, they're not preparing to surrender. They're preparing to survive a battle. It'll be at least 20 hours before the Enterprise can get back to help. Back in the wormhole, the aliens still want to know why Sisko exists in the worst moment of his life. And he finally gets it. He's stuck in that moment. He can't let Jennifer go. Let the moment that he lost her go. He exists here. And he's never figured out how to live without her. And he has to confess, he chooses to live here. It is not linear. Deep Space Nine puts up a good front against the Cardassians, making them think the station is fully armed. Doesn't work for long, though, and the Cardassians attack. Things aren't going well for the space station until the wormhole reopens, proving Deep Space Nine's story. Sailing back through, Gul Dukat being towed by Benjamin Sisko in his own ship. And with that, the assault is over. Sisko is reunited with Jake. The Enterprise returns. The beings who built the wormhole have agreed to allow passage through it. And if it's cool with Picard, Sisko will stick around and command Deep Space Nine. The end. Or should I say, the beginning? I, this is like a whole different show. It's like a whole different show, right? It's it's kind of neat to see the Enterprise again. It's like, hey, Dad's here. And then Dad's like, well, I'm out. And you're like, whoa, wait, <laughs> right. what? what you, so I'm just going to stay here? Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, we, we will exist there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nicely done, sir. Nicely Thank done. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, it, within our observations, the, the big one for me right at the beginning is tone, tone, tone. And, and I don't mean uh, Tony, Tony, Tony. Yeah. I mean tone. I don't mean tone loke. I mean tone. You don't mean they like to do the wild thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Please, baby, baby, please. It's just very different. Uh, uh, stuff doesn't work. People are just slightly abrasive. Um, it's visually darker, and it just not everyone is on the same page. Well, stuff would work if the Cardassians hadn't broken it all. Oh, no, I know there's a reason stuff doesn't work, but I'm just saying we're starting from a, a point where we arrive in the story where stuff doesn't work. That's um, true. Yeah, That's the, true. The, the replicators, you, you can't get a good bed. Even O'Brien says we, we can go get a bunk off the Enterprise if it will make you not complain <laughs> you know didn't they though wasn't the enterprise gonna leave like a replicator with the uxbridges yeah yeah oh yeah that that little that prop that we can rent from modern props yeah yeah you say that but we never do <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing why is like oh we can bring you a bed from the enterprise you, you know you know who's gonna do that right 
listen, guys, we've got enough potatoes. Tell you what. Mm-hmm. We need yeah. you, if you could, to carry this bed. Like, and then, like, what? And we'll we'll give you pizza and beer. Yeah, apparently. right. I, like, yeah. hey, why don't you go up to the shop where you replicate wedding presents, and why don't you replicate <laughs> a sleeping bag? Or why not just bring them like a replicator, like the mm-hmm. one they were going to give the Uxbridges? I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I take it back because they did give that one to the Uxbridges, didn't they? Well, the Uxbridge. And, and that's the only one. Just yeah. Kevin gets his replicator. Sorry, Deep Space Nine. Well, here's the problem. You see, they would replicate one. Mm-hmm. But they gave the replicator to Kevin Exbridge. <laughs> this, oh, this is a, a tautological <laughs> it's a bad mess. Idea. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so what do we do now? Well, we take the replicator. Oh, oh, you know what we should have done first? Replicate another replicator. Now we'll have to 3D print one, and that'll take like a month. Um, so I don't understand people who say that they don't like Deep Space Nine because they never go anywhere. Because mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine moved. Deep yeah. Space Nine moved in this episode. How good was that? It's pretty neat. I don't, yeah. I don't think they can do it. It would be kind of neat if they did it every week. I know they kind of have to stay at the wormhole now because they don't want the Cardassians to take it back. <laughs> right. Wouldn't it be great, though, if, like, man, next week on a brand new Deep Space Nine, it's it's um, Risa. They're yeah. all going to Risa, right? <laughs> and then Quark's upset because his business is shot. Uh-huh. Because who wants to hang around Quark's when you're, like, Risa's right there? Yeah. Yeah, which I think is their ad slogan, by the way. Risa. It's right there. <laughs> Nice, nice. Hey, uh, we mentioned JG at the beginning of the show. It was really cool to see a Vulcan captain on the Saratoga. Um, mm-hmm. Why is there a barber on the bridge? I know, right? He's yeah. like, uh, he's like, well, I was going to say he's like Saru, but we have no idea who that is. We, I don't but know what yes, you're talking yeah. about. I don't want to be a barber, Mom. I want to yeah. be a Starfleet officer. Like, <laughs> you can be a Starfleet barber. How old that? No, you're not listening. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jake, uh, well, well, let's see here. In, in this first episode, Cisco uh, just straight up lies to uh, Gul Dukat because Gul Dukat says, hey, do you have an orb? He's like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. He's like, no, we know. It's like, I have no idea. And, but, but earlier, I, we foreshadowed that because Jake says to Ben, uh, to his dad, will there be kids there? Absolutely. Lots of kids. Liar. Lots of kids. Liar. And we see, what, one other kid, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Molly's it? there someplace. We know that. Yeah, that's true. But she's a little young. She's, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think we're just going to hang out. Yeah. I think Jake's going to be all like, yeah, well, I'm like 13 or 14, and she's two. Yeah. So yeah. we'll play games. Cause, can you replicate yeah, a friend for Jake, <laughs> please? <laughs> no, we can't, because we gave the replicator to the expert. Yes, uh-huh. it's a problem. It's, it's difficult. Uh, they, uh, Kira tells Odo that he can't go with them uh, into the wormhole because your job is security on the station. You have to be here. But, oh, but but wait, Odo, you just made an impassioned personal speech about finding yourself, so, so yeah, you should probably come along, too. Yeah. Exposition is a funny thing. It is. It, <laughs> it has to happen. It has to happen. I was trying to remember, honestly... Well, we'll get into that later. Yeah, I know. Uh, basically, it, as far as they know, they'll be right back. That's the thing. Right, so, right. Sure. Yeah. What can happen, really? We'll leave Quark in charge. And I know that they're not Starfleet, but but that should be like a, a lesson somewhere along in Starfleet. It's like if you're in a position where you want to go on an away mission, but somebody says you can't, you just you got to find something personal and meaningful and emotional. And then, boom, you get invited to come along. That is that is very Starfleet. You're right. Mm-hmm. Even though they're not Starfleet, but yeah, yeah, he's bucking for promotion to Starfleet. It would seem <laughs> right. O'Brien has a great line. He he says, uh, "Computer, you and I need to have a little talk." 
But then we, we cut before the computer can reply. And I feel like, look, we, we all have devices in our homes now that, that we can talk to and they talk back to us. And most of the time they get it wrong. Um, but how great that I think if you say, particularly computer, computer, you and I need to have a little talk. I'm certain that as soon as they cut, the computer had something to say back to O'Brien. And it would have been a never ending. This would be a whole other a day in the life of O'Brien. Now he's not <laughs> stuck in the transporter room. Now he's just in an endless logical loop with the computer. How'd you like uh, the shout out, by the way, to his favorite transporter room? Oh, yeah. We never knew that he had a favorite until now. Well, you did, though. It was transporter room three. Three. Yeah. This is your favorite one, isn't it? Yes. I really wish they had. It, is that a deleted scene? Like, why, by the no. way? <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. Why this one? Yeah. Because yeah. cause I rigged the transporter control mm-hmm. where I can hit it like the Fonz. <laughs> and it'll, it'll just do exactly what I want it to do. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I may have talked about this here before. I can't remember if I talked about it here on or, or on one of the supplementals. But it's mm-hmm. for me personally, it's worth mentioning one more time. Um, we don't really get to say goodbye to the Enterprise. Mm-mm. And like, I mean, like, because the D like crashed into the planet, of course, mm-hmm. and the E was, you know, kind of just beaten up by uh, Shinzon. Yeah. And um, and and watching O'Brien look around the bridge for what is his last time. Yeah. Was for me, actually, a, a tiny bit emotional because, yeah. again, we just finished our three and a half years with that crew. And so, you know, even though it was still a ship, as far as, you know, most people watching Deep Space Nine were concerned, like, oh, three days from now, I'll go back to watching the Enterprise. Right. Um, yeah. But but this really is our this is our last shot at that ship. Yeah. The way you and I are watching it. And it was kind yeah. of a it, it's neat. It was neat to have a character sort of take that in because our characters never got to take that in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And thus, I sort of feel like we were robbed of that chance as well. So, and and then have an emotional moment about one of many transporter rooms. That's true. Yeah, Weird that's out. right. There wasn't really yeah. enough there. I wanted more from that exchange, actually. Although, I mean, it's a good, it's good to. It is good. To, I mean, you're really. I mean, uh, Miles O'Brien is graduating at that point as a character, mm-hmm. and and Cole Meany is graduating as an actor in the Star Trek universe at that mm-hmm. point as well. Mm-hmm. Like you know, week to week on the Enterprise, maybe you're going to see Cole Meany, maybe you're not. But from now on, he is actually going to be a central uh, character yeah. on this new series, and so I mean, in a way, it is. Well, like I say, it's almost like a graduation. It would just be neat if, you know, Picard had something more to say to him, like, oh, chief, I'm going to miss you. Oh, I'm going to miss you, too. What are we talking? So you like this transporter room. See, that's, I, I see it as a failure <laughs> of the personnel records on the Enterprise. Like, Picard, somebody could have handed him a pad that says, like, uh, uh, Chief O'Brien, he really, uh, he, he's Irish, and he really <laughs> likes uh, this kind of breakfast, and he really hates uh, uh, what Keiko cooks for breakfast. Um, right. But no, but instead, he's just like, he's stuck. He's like, oh. Says here you leave your socks everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but, but oh, but. <laughs> Look at, look at this room that we're yes, in. Yes, uh-huh. yes, that you yeah. were assigned to be in for most of the time that you were here. You like it, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I call it Transporter Room 3, and I like it <laughs> a lot. Fun introduction to Dax. Same old Dax. 
Um, I'm really glad we got to see the reintroduction of a Trill character ever since we first met one on Next Gen in The Host, mm-hmm. because this is a new way to explore that character. And and I like that we immediately have two different reactions to her. Cisco uh, uh, knowing her as someone else. Right. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Bashir just sort of in awe of the person that he just met. So uh, a fun dynamic that, that they got to start out with on that. Um, now, we may talk about the aliens in the wormhole later. I don't know. I haven't looked that far ahead in our show. Uh, but there was something really funny to me about them not understanding linear time. So if you take any of those lines that they have out of context, you know, uh, one of the aliens says uh, the creature, meaning Cisco, must be destroyed before it destroys us. And I'm waiting for Cisco to say, wait, see, you just said it. You said before you said before. (laughs) So that means that that there was something that happened up until now and it'll be different later. Boom, that that's linear time. You get it. You get it. And then they just they, they don't know. No. <laughs> I always thought that I caught one of those in Star Wars, actually. Oh, really? Because Star Wars takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and yet they're talking about you know going into hyperdrive, and uh, and uh, and Han Solo says if they do that, they'll fly right through the solid Earth. Oh, did they? Did they? Yeah, huh. I was like, oh, okay. And then my mom tried to explain. It's like, well, you know, they mean Earth, like dirt. And I'm like, yeah, but what's dirt. Earth named yeah. after? It's named after yeah. the Earth, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, that's it was, so Star Wars was shot for me when I was seven. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> me, too, me, too, me too. If only I weren't such a literalist. It, it took me to get to the prequels. The prequels and then the postquels. I know you're not a big fan of one of the postquels either. Eh, maybe or a couple. Yeah. <laughs> Man, no. <laughs> no. Uh, we're never doing that podcast. No. No. I, I picture uh, Roladen Wildraw. Mm-hmm. That, that was a, a good when uh, O'Brien says to Kira, like, oh, I'd hate to play you in Roladen Wildraw. I picture it like poker, but with more threats of physical <laughs> violence. I think this is pretty much what it is. It's interesting. Yeah. I picture it like poker, but with dancing for some reason. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's like a different take on it. Weird hand movements of some sort. Yeah. Uh, I, I was a little bit concerned about Kai Opaka uh, because Kira explains Kai Opaka is her spiritual leader and only she can unite the Bajoran people. Uh, but she wants to talk to anybody. Yeah. So so why is she the spiritual leader? And, and did she try? Did she try at some point? I know somebody has now a drinking game for every time I mention the Age of Innocence. Mm-hmm. Good. But there's a fantastic thing in the Age of Innocence where um, Archer is talking to the Countess Zelenska. And they're talking about the Vanderleidens because, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. The Vanderleidens basically uh, throw open the uh, uh, their welcome arms when the Count of Solenska gets there, which is sort of an unheard of thing. And so Archer's explaining to him, he's like, yeah, they're they're really influential and they, they seldom receive people because, uh, you know, Cousin Luis is often sick. And and the Countess is like, oh, well, maybe that's the reason. And Archer's like, the reason? He's like, yeah, for their influence because they don't show up for much. Mm. This is Kaiopaka. Mm. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah nobody right. can see Kaiopaka. Like, uh, oh, I have a religious question for Kaiopaka. No, Kaiopaka is far too busy for you. But then somebody important comes, like Cisco, right? Mm-hmm. And Cisco's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to empty the trash. And they're like, yeah, but Kaiopaka would really like to see you. And he's like, can you see I'm busy? I'll get to Kaiopaka. <laughs> right? So yeah. suddenly, like, if there's somebody bigger in town, then yes, she's, yes. Hey, remember, Kaiopaka's door is always open. 
<laughs> just yeah. stop by uh, uh, Cisco. Uh, unless you're, right. Yeah, unless you're Bajoran. <laughs> right. right. And, and, and she is your spiritual leader and could unite oh, your people. Yeah. Far too busy talking to the orbs. She can't. She doesn't really have time for you because she's too busy communing with the, uh, communing with the glowy things. Hey, question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was Kira's response to Quark? Is that what you wanted from Deanna in first yes. contact? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, That's I, pretty I great. can't remember what she said exactly, but I know it was exactly what I wanted, where she's like, get your hand off my waist or... You'll never be able to lift a glass. Oh, that's yeah. what it was. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was good to that was good to see. And Quark has such a great line in this episode, never trust ale from a God fearing people. Although I do have to say, Ken, you and I, as sons of the South, we, we know that in Lynchburg, Tennessee, they do make a fine whiskey. Well, they make a lot of whiskey. <laughs> a shapeshifter, some Ferengi, some Bajorans, a bunch of humans. I have to say, the whole thing is very thrilling. So before we get the emails, Mm -hmm. because I know people are clicking and clacking. I know they're ready. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we've been to Deep Space Nine, but this is not our first time doing uh, Mission Log. This is episode 269 of Mission Log. So Whoa. we have a goof-off part in the middle where we goof off a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think people are especially, especially the people who love Deep Space Nine, are very protective of Deep Space Nine. Sure. So, I mean, us being goofy does not mean that we do not respect this show. We are on episode mm-hmm. one of this show. But as I mentioned, episode 269 of uh, of uh, of Mission Log. So we're being goofy because we're goofy in that mm-hmm. part of the show. And then, you know, we get to more serious stuff. For example, uh, John was talking about uh, in the last segment, he was talking about the fact that the uh, the wormhole, the people in the wormhole say, let's do this before this happens. And yet they don't get linear time, but they do. Mm-hmm. But they don't. But they do. Right. I actually had a question about the things in the wormhole. Okay. Do they exist outside of time, or are they just being Zen? Are they are they choosing to see no difference between past, present, and future because because everything that is is. There's no point in hitching your your wagon to something that might happen that's never going to. Mm-hmm. Just as there's no point in anchoring yourself to something that happened a long time ago because that was a long time ago and we've moved on. Hmm. Um, do they know what's going to happen? I guess is my question. Do they see ahead, or is it just like a state of mind thing where they're like? Yeah, you know, tomorrow's uh, uh, tomorrow's a mystery. We don't really know, so there's no point in, in actually worrying about tomorrow. There's no point in in being burdened by what happened yesterday. Uh, we've got right here, we've got right now, and, and this is who we are ever after. Interesting. See, I, I, to me, I, I thought the intention was that 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 space in the wormhole is out of time. I, I, I think about, you know, if I were to maybe make another parallel, I, I, I'd say you take a guy like, uh, let's call him Lazarus, and um, and one of them's got a, a Band-Aid on his head and the other one doesn't, and they just fight in a corridor uh, just for, for all eternity, unaware unaware of what else is out there around them. Now, I mean, right. I, I thought that, you know, they essentially are are in this space that is uh, uh, has achieved a level of stasis where they, they just mm-hmm. are, they just exist. You introduce a human or a, or, or a, a trill or 
or a, a Cardassian or whomever might come in there. And for whatever reason, whether it's just, uh, how they exist or the technologies that they have, they're able to clearly see and experience what is going on in that person's mind as they do with Cisco. Um, and even though those people are experiencing linear time, the aliens don't, but they're just sort of picking up the pieces and experience them all at once. So I, I, it's an interesting idea to think that they, they are that way because they have evolved to a point where they don't care. Right. Um, but I, I thought that in sort of the literal context of the show that, uh, that, they actually exist on a different plane that whatever is happening from, you know, between point A and point B of the wormhole is just completely and utterly removed from our experience of the universe. You, you almost you kind of almost need a cue to come in and explain it. OK, but here's the thing. But Q knows things that Q knows, right? Mm -hmm. Like like when when Cisco goes in there. They're able to read a lot of things off Cisco's mind, but they still don't completely understand. Mm -hmm. Like if they were, so I mean, it's almost like they're not they're not across time. They're just constantly in a moment mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. when Cisco gets there, they don't say, "Ah, yes, we've known about you coming for quite a while now," and yes, we know the Cardassians are coming in just a minute. And there's no point in us even debating whether or not we're going to open the wormhole because we know we're going to because we know all of time. They don't actually know anything about time. They don't know anything about what's. I mean, you can't even, and, and this is the problem, you can't even have the conversation of, like, they don't know what's going to happen because they don't understand the idea of going to happen. And yet, yeah. they don't also have an all-encompassing knowledge of everything either, right? If no time exists in the wormhole, then anything that's ever happened in the wormhole must have already happened. It's already happened, and it's going to happen again, and it's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's no, like obviously this way is going to be open. Obviously you're Benjamin Cisco. Obviously you're going to get over your wife or over the loss of the, of your wife. Right, right. Right. Or you're going to be able to move beyond this point. They don't understand why he can't move beyond that point, And yet they sort of exist in all points mm. in time, which doesn't actually seem to exist there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, we, we might, the, I won't say we're giving it more thought than any of the writers gave, but um, I, I'd be curious. That's what we do, John. I know, right? Yeah, but I, I'd be curious. Do. I'd be curious. You, please, we just finished Next Gen, which ended like uh, close to 30 years ago now as we record this. Yeah. You have told stories about, yeah, so they were shooting in four days and they didn't have a story yet. Yeah. And yet 27 <laughs> years later, you and I are like, but what were they really trying to say? <laughs> yeah, and the answer is they were really trying to say, we have four days to get a show in the can. Right. Now, I, I, to be fair, this show, they had a lot of time to develop it and read really yeah. you know treat it like a feature but but yeah i mean that, that is sort of the difficult thing when uh you have uh human writers uh with a human cast and and only the words that we have between us try to describe this very sort of mind-bendy alien concept well what if they don't get time man think about that but the problem is then you actually have to describe it in the show you actually have to have the characters talk about it in the show and you have to have the aliens respond in a language that we can all understand in the show so when you slip in a word like before well okay that that kind of throws off the the point of that see and that's i think that's part of what got me as well when they say do that before he destroys us i mean he, 
they have to know that they're never destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, right. so he's not going to be destroyed unless they really don't know what's going to happen next, in which right. case was there actual fear there? Yeah. And, and is it just a matter of like, because you'll meet people who will say things like, you know, oh, I don't really think about that. And it's like, well, you have words for it, so you must kind of think about it, but you're trying to train yourself not to. Mm-hmm. You're trying not to get caught. So these things are apparently trying not to get caught on what may happen someday, unless it really does just exist out of time, in which case, what do they even care? Yeah. Yeah. I, dude, that's a good question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Get somebody on the phone. Yeah, right. Uh, now, here's what's interesting to me, though. So that that whole sequence, and I think it's a lovely sequence. I, I think it's really interesting. We have all the characters in Cisco's mind, like Kirk and Jake and his wife, and all, talking as and Kirk the was not there. I'm, I'm assuming you mean Picard. Oh, Picard, Picard. Yeah. No, I, I said <laughs> I, I, I meant Picard, but but no. But here's the thing: the reason I said yeah. Kirk is because to me this felt like. A Kirk speech slash a Picard speech. It felt like the speech by the captain in the episode. He's got to defend humanity yeah. by laying it out to the aliens, thus laying it out to the audience of what humanity is, what makes us tick, and then sort of setting up uh, uh, Star Trek's idea of who we are. And I thought all of that played out really nicely because it wasn't just the captain standing in front of a computer and saying, we're humans and we do this and we're not barbarians. It was this weird, timey-wimey, ethereal thing where he's grasping for the concepts, these big concepts, and landing on the idea that, that humans don't know what's coming next, but everything that we do has some kind of a consequence. And, and to me, that was a huge theme in this episode was consequence. Cisco explaining as much of that to the wormhole aliens, but it, it, it's sort of like the guiding mantra for the show, I think, that, that you can't run from problems when you're all in the same space station, that everything that you do will have some cause and effect to reference the title of a next-gen show. And that's something that I liked about them starting with wolf 359 because it's something that as a next gen viewer we knew what happened we knew what happened with picard and here's this little thread of a story that came from that with somebody we had not met when we saw the best of both worlds and we saw wow for years now this has been a consequence from that in this guy's life this has led him to who he is and now he's got to decide. He's got to make a decision. A lovely little scene with Picard there at the end. Um, he's got to make a decision if he's going to stay or if he's going to get out of there. And and what are the consequences for him, for his son, for the other people on the station, for Bajor, for the wormhole, if he cuts and runs? So that was an interesting introduction of an idea here. I wonder if you and I are thinking about consequence in different ways, because I don't, it's interesting to me that you see uh, the biggest theme is consequence. Mm. It it seems to me that the biggest theme is just, we don't know everything and that's okay. Mm. Mm. Um, But I'm I wonder if I'm thinking of consequences like you do that, mister, and you're in trouble. Oh, as no, opposed no. to, as you, as you say, cause and effect. Yeah, no, because I, I, I felt like in the show, uh, even when he would use words like experience or consequence, Cisco in particular didn't mean it with a negative connotation. Right. You know, okay. He would just describe like, yeah, everything in my life and Jennifer's life that led up to this point, when they decide, when they met, when they got married, when they had Jake, 
these were all things that were consequences of their actions, but but not a con- not a negative connotation to that, not a negative consequence. It was just to say mm. that okay, here are the points that we landed at because of who we are and because of everything else that had happened up to that point. Yeah. Okay. Because because that I can get behind, especially because I mean we sort of get that in the speech from Cisco as well. Like I wondered, I wondered maybe it, it's so weird because the whole thing is not being held down by your past, but I mean certainly you do take your past with you. Mm-hmm. I mean Picard does certainly in his meeting with Cisco, and Cisco does you know obviously as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the other way to think about consequence, I mean nobody really faces any consequences except for maybe Nog. <laughs> right, right. Because he had to go to jail, even for a minute, and he might have gone to a Bajoran prison forever. But mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, but I do see what you're saying. Every, everybody is sort of informed by what's what's come before. Uh, what's past is prologue. One Ooh. might say. Ooh, boy, that yes. makes a good title. Yeah, that would make a good title. It would indeed. Yeah. And a nice quote by somebody too, mm-hmm. if if anybody wants to say it. <laughs> There's another theme here of uh, which you just touched upon, which is facing the past, but but also starting with a, a new beginning. We're we're sort of in that you know bonk bonk on the head territory by by telling Cisco you exist here. But I I love that I, I love that moment, and it really works for the character, and it works for what the show is trying to get across. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that it, it's. Um, I, I don't think it's so simplified as to say um, you exist here and that's a problem. So you need to forget it and move on. I think it's more you exist here. You need to face and sort of uh, uh, figure out the trauma hmm. and also be able to move on. Yeah. Yes. I'm with you. I agree. Um there's actually an interesting thing that happens in this episode uh, to me, because I think a lot of people think that I'm not looking forward to Deep Space Nine, and I don't know enough to know about whether I'm looking forward to it or not. I mean, yeah, I, I don't understand that. Yeah. I don't either, but it's, it's fine. I think. Well, I mean, it's probably not helped by the fact that I said forever, you know, that Next Gen is my Star Trek, because <laughs> now probably <laughs> right. everybody thinks something like, is downhill after that. You know, no, it's not that. <laughs> it's just that's the one I was most familiar well, with. Well, no. It, and look, and to be fair, TOS is my Star Trek, and just you and I have seen very little of Deep Space Nine, but that's cool. Like, it, we get to approach the show in a new way. Yes. So that's awesome. What I will say, though, is going into this new uh, series, new to me series, not completely new, but somewhat new, um, yeah. I did find something to love in the first episode that actually goes all the way back to before Star Trek. Uh, Cisco starts here where Pike started. In the cage, when we first meet Pike, the Enterprise had just had its backside handed to it in the battle on Rigel, right? And Pike was ready to quit. He's just ready to, like, I'm, I'm out. That's it. I'm done. I'm tired. That's enough. Yeah. And here, our leader, Cisco, uh, has had his backside handed to him, you know, first by the Borg and then, you know, uh, by the rest of his life. For mm-hmm. the past three years, for raising a son on his own, which he never thought he was going to do, and by losing his wife, and by, you know, watching watching the ship that she was on explode, and all those things. And he's ready to quit. And not unlike Pike, by the end of episode one, he comes back to his senses, and comes back to his mission, uh, mm-hmm. uh, simply in realizing and explaining who humans are, and what humans do. Yeah. And that was actually a really, that was a, that was a, a revelatory, revelatory. It revealed a revelatory thing for me to see. He's Pike. 
I mean, because yeah. we never got that off of Picard. Picard was your tough as nails, you know, a, a British tar is a whatever tar thing, right? A, a he, British tar, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is that guy. Uh, yeah. uh, Kirk was always a bit swashbuckly. I think he was more. Yeah. I think he was more mature than I thought he was when we first started watching TOS. But I mean, there was not. There was. I, I've joked many times. There is no rearview mirror on the Enterprise because Kirk looks forward. He does not mm-hmm. look back. And it's interesting to me. To I mean, we've got in a way. I mean, very different, obviously. But this is our first captain treatment coming back twenty some odd years later for Deep Space Nine. Yeah, somebody who's been in space long enough, who's had enough bad things happen that he's not sure he wants to keep doing this anymore. And yeah. and in really exploring himself, being forced to, I'll grant you, but in really exploring himself and really, you know, having to justify why he's even there, well, then there's really nothing else he can do but what he's doing. Although it's kind of funny, he's like, we're explorers. And now if you'll excuse me, I'm going to park myself right outside your front door. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, there's a great line that the wormhole aliens have. We seek contact with other life forms. Not corporeal beings that threaten to destroy us. I love that line <laughs> because you and I talked way back in TOS days about carbon chauvinism and assuming that that was the way that life existed. That's the way that life should exist. Right. <laughs> that's just the way it is. And I love flipping the tables on that and having the aliens say, like, yeah, well, see, this is life. Um, you're just a thing. <laughs> Right. And uh, we're pretty unimpressed with that thing right now. <laughs> yeah, know? that's interesting. What goes in a wormhole? Worms. That's mm-hmm. Maybe that's all they're seeing there. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, ugh. yeah, mm-hmm. we're seeking life, not whatever this is that's scurrying around in this tunnel that we made. Yeah. For, for an unknown reason. Um, th- I, there was an interesting thing that happened on Deep Space Nine itself that I was mm-hmm. kind of troubled by, but I get it. I mean, say what you want to about Bashir. He's not wrong about this being the frontier. Say what you oh, want yeah, to about, course. you know, Bashir. He's not wrong about this being the wilderness. It is kind of rude to go to the person who calls it uh, home and be like, yeah, you know, I could have worked anywhere, but I chose a crap hole <laughs> that you live in. Um, yeah. So so Cisco is there and he's got to run a space station. The only problem is, you know, if you're going to have a functioning space station, you need people. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to have people, well, you're going to need vice. Because <laughs> that's he doesn't go to you know he doesn't go to the butcher and say listen we really need you here cutting meat because if you're not here cutting meat then people who want meat are going to go elsewhere he goes mm-hmm. to Quark and he's like listen you do uh, you do those crazy uh, those holodeck things which they don't actually mention in this episode but you do those holodeck right. things you do the gambling uh, you do the liquor uh, mm-hmm. we, really if we want anybody to stick around here. We're going to need all the worst things for people that, that money can buy. Oh, money. Right. By the way, we're going to need money. So, yeah, yeah this is going to be a tough job. It just yeah. it struck me as kind of a interesting and kind of a commentary. And yet, at the same time, if I'm staying at a hotel, if there's a, if there's a good bar in the lobby of the hotel, I'm happier mm-hmm. than if there's not. So, I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not oh, faulting yeah. them for saying that. I'm wondering... Well, I guess it's the difference between TOS and TNG and the frontier story that we're telling this time. Because uh, up until now, we've been all Starfleet all the time, and we just didn't have to dirty our hands with the idea of like, well, okay, what if we picked up some Ferengis somewhere, and what if they opened up a bar on the Enterprise? What if they (laughs) took over 10 forward? Well, we just didn't have to worry about that. That's true. That's true. You only had to worry about 500-year-old women from an extinct planet. 
exactly taking over yeah. the bar yeah yeah hey uh so you know just a just a tiny subject to throw in here just really quick uh, mm. off the top of my head uh religion um we'll just we'll just get that out there <laughs> so there's a religious exploration and angle that we're we're just starting to see on this show um i have some thoughts and i know that we're just getting started so i want to politely request that our listeners don't write in to explain what is to come because we're all watching this with fresh eyes here we're taking it as it's delivered in order and that's kind of the fun of it right because the show as it went along when you were watching it new starting way back in 1993, you just got one episode at a time. You didn't know what was coming next, you know. But but here we go. Uh, one note about the deleted scenes. So in one of those deleted scenes, Cisco does return the orb to Kaiopaka. And he says, uh, basically, yeah, look, uh, the prophets are, uh, they're, they're a bunch of aliens and they're hanging out in the wormhole. But she doesn't want to hear it. Hmm. She, she says something along the lines of... Uh, you know, we don't want to look into the faces or into the eyes of our gods, you know. So she wants to keep that aspect of of their belief holy and separate from uh, from what they uh, what they could actually experience. And that was the thing that was interesting to me in this. So, like I said, I, I know that we're still just getting started. We're just dipping our toes in the water here of how Star Trek and how Deep Space Nine in particular is going to deal with uh, a religious and, and spiritual tradition in these aliens as it plays out. Um, from what I saw here, we say... The Bajorans are spiritual, and this is important, and it's an ancient tradition. But what we introduce is here we have physical objects, the orbs, that can be studied and measured, and you can bring it back to a lab, and you can ask Dax to, to run a database uh, search and, and figure out what these things have been doing for 10,000 years and uh, tell us about what kind of uh, spatial anomalies have shown up in that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Bajorans have had spaceships. For a while, so much so that, you know, uh, what was it, a couple hundred years before you had one of the other Kai just sort of drift off when the heavens opened up. Right. Um, so it, it's interesting to me that we're introducing a spiritual belief, but it seems like there's another layer here in the show that's saying, OK, there's a belief that's been happening over there. But we also have this like physical, tangible thing that we can measure and put a name on it and put a location on it and say, uh, yeah, it, it exists in the real world. Like, here's this thing. Here, here's this object. You guys might choose to believe it, but we can also put it in a lab and study it and figure it out. Yeah. It's like if there were still a, a church, you know, actively worshiping Thor. Mm -hmm. We know why thunder now. <laughs> right, right. It's probably yeah. not a guy with a hammer. Right. But then if you had a bunch of people going, well, you know why thunder, but we really know why thunder. So we like it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, I'd be curious. See, the thing is, so I'm like three removed from what you're doing, because not only have I not been watching this for the past 20 years, which I know a lot of mm. people do go back and watch it over and over again. Um, not only have I not been watching it for the past 20 years, but I'm watching on Netflix. So I don't even have like the deleted scenes that you're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm curious about Kaiopaka's decision because my immediate thought is what priest is going to like, you know, find the proof that there's no God and then run out and tell everybody because you know, <laughs> <laughs> probably at that point you don't get to keep your house. Probably at that point, yeah. you know, people are like, oh, really? So tithing then was just like an idea that somebody thought. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Well, you we can't take him for 50 percent. Well, you we probably take him for 10. That sounds like a yeah. godly number to 10 percent. Would you say? Yeah, let's go. Sure. Oh, but there isn't one. Uh, why don't we just I tell you what? We're going to get to that. Yeah. First, though. Uh, has anybody counted the tithe this way? <laughs> With Picard gone and Cisco staying, it is time to see what we can learn from Emissary. Well, it's the first episode of Deep Space Nine, and the first episode of Deep Space Nine for us. Though it is, of course, uh, 269, I believe we said, uh, mission log. So this is the part of the show where we always do the thing we do, even if it's with new characters and new crews and a new setting and a new all of it. It's time to take it apart for, uh, uh, you know, uh, sussing out the messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. And that's where we start. Uh, Emissary, John. Uh, a fun fact... Sometimes called Emissary 1 and Emissary 2, <laughs> which I'm assuming is just a syndication thing, but it's just the one episode. Emissary. I looked it up. Emissary is a representative sent on a mission or errand. Okay. Obviously, what's his name? Um, um, I can think of the actor, Adrian but I guess Cisco. Cisco. Thank you very much. Obviously, yeah. Cisco yeah. is the emissary here. Uh, to whom, sent by whom, for what purpose... Or is he emissary to, like, five different things in this? Oh, you're asking me? I am asking you, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it sounds like a catch-all, actually. I mean, it, it, yes, he, he is specifically named as the emissary who is going to go in and meet those uh, wormhole aliens. Right. Um, but We need yeah, a better he, name for them, by the way. I'm thinking wormholians. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Until yeah. we hear otherwise. Yeah. Let's go with sure. wormholians. <laughs> but but he's also the, uh, the the person that the Federation is sending out to this frontier, um, even though Kira might be offended by the use of that word. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is the person who's being sent out to that frontier to represent the Federation. He's the one who's going to kind of uh, get it under control. So he, he's an emissary in that respect as well. Uh, yeah. Does the episode hold up as far as you're concerned? It's a little bit tough to answer that because we're it, it, unlike uh, what we did before on on TOS and and Next Gen, you know, where up until now we could kind of look at an episode and and sort of isolate it um, and say, okay, do, does this episode because of either the the morals or the production value or whatever does this hold up? Is it something we want to go back and watch? This is a little bit weird because we're we're in new territory here. Um, this show is making a very concerted effort to tell the audience this is different Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of getting used to in this episode. I think I watched this episode more times than I have watched any other episode in a single uh, uh, review for our show. Um, Sometimes we'll watch an episode, you know, three, four, 
times. I, I probably watched this because we had a little bit of a break in between. I probably watched this six, maybe more if I add up other pieces that I just went back and watched. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, uh, some observations. I have to admit that I'm usually the first person to run away from any movie or TV show that uses sports as a metaphor for life. Hmm. But I really liked the use of baseball here. Um, it, it, For one thing, it helped to ground the characters, and it's a really clever way to introduce the themes. I like that whole segment of Cisco explaining humanity in all these different locations with all these different angles. And, and the, the baseball bit added some levity to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode kind of on its own is a little weird a little inconsistent it's trying to cram a lot of plot and a lot of character but it's also trying to set a tone for what is to come and and those tones being mystery for one thing and the sort of noir feel of the the location and the the type of characters and like i said consequence before so these are characters who are going to be stuck where they are trying to make the best of what they've got. Um, It's very much unlike the Enterprise showing up and we fixed your problems by, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Um, But I think the episode is very effective with telling the audience it's different, it's new, it's dark, it's weird, there's an air of mystery. So it it is very effective with that. Um, I will say this. I find Avery Brooks as Cisco to be a little, just a tiny bit odd. Hmm. It's not because I think he's a bad actor. I think he's a really good actor. I find him commanding, and and I, I think right away there's this interesting dynamic with Jake, and right away uh, we've seen him lie twice in this episode. <laughs> um but I, I don't really get his delivery all the time. He has a lovely voice. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he sometimes sounds like he's reading the audiobook version <laughs> of the scenes that he's in. <laughs> but, but, but with that said, with that said, like, it, he, he is commanding, he is engaging on screen, and I already, and I already like this cast overall. Um, but but there's a, a change here from Kirk as the the head of the show and Picard as the head of the show to now Cisco, the head of the show. And uh, that will take a little bit of getting used to for me. But, but in in the end, I I think this holds up. I think this holds up if you were just to isolate this episode, because it it is very well produced from a, uh, a technical point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It moves along and there's action and tension in there, but I really like those moments where we get to stop and talk a bit. The, that stuff has played very well. So uh, what do you think here about the episode? It has faults, but I can't fault them for it. Um, though I'd imagine they'll explain a few things to us again and again and again. They are really trying to make sure that we get the explanations up front. And and yeah. honestly, it's a little yeah. painful. Odo's expo- exposition is painful. Kira's exposition mm-hmm. is ridiculously painful. 
Because even though I think we probably heard almost that exact same speech from Ro Laren at some point, she got to live in different ways. And I kind of wonder if they weren't, well, I mean, maybe there were people who were going to start watching Deep Space Nine who had never seen, um, who had never seen Next Gen for some reason, or maybe they had missed the Ro Laren episodes. But I mean, you're right. I mean, it's obvious that they wanted that same character, if not the same actress, because she gives a speech that's almost exactly the same as one that Ro Laren gave before, I think. Sure. Uh, Dax's exposition is graphic, but I mean, it's kind of okay because we've seen it, you know, before. Maybe you missed that episode of Next Gen, and so you have to explain that again. Um, we get very little off Bashir, actually, except he's kind of a there's a there's a certain level of derp, like from him, yeah. right? It's a bit awkward. Yeah, but it's fine. Maybe we'll learn more about it. Maybe we won't. Um, <laughs> O'Brien, Cisco, and Quark's expositions are, I think, the least labored because, you know, we sort of understand them. We already get Ferengi. And I think the Ferengi were, like, enough of a known quantity, having done, what, five years at that point on Next Gen, that you don't need Quark to say, I'm going to take care for everything I can, right? Because we know Ferengi. That's what they do. That, mm-hmm. And so we don't have to have him explain that so much. More his exposition is he's got a brother, and we don't know anything about his brother, but his brother can't be worth that much because look what happened to his kid, and Quark feels responsible for him. All right, so, mm-hmm. I mean, their expositions, I think, are sort of the least labored because we understand them. Um, and we know O'Brien, right? And then uh, we're going to spend a decent amount of time getting to know Cisco, I think. So, I mean, everything else you said, design is amazing. Um, uh, uh, direction, all of that's amazing. Uh, the one thing that you might be able to fault them on is the writing, but that is because we we need for people to know who these characters are. And so we're going to have them. I mean, the one thing that's always a drag is when you have a character stand up and say, this is why I am as I am. It's like, eh, all right. Yeah. I'd rather you took a little time and just showed me how you were and I could figure it out. But that's not what they were going to do with this episode. Everybody was going to explain. And so they did. And so hopefully we're not going to have that same explanation from everybody, you know, every episode. Um, that would honestly be the only thing I could fault it for. And even there, I get it. You're, you're telling everybody who everybody is so you can go ahead and start telling your stories. I, I think it's a better pilot than Encounter at Farpoint. Yeah, it's not a pilot. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's a better opening episode. Than, than encounter, encounter at Farpoint. Farpoint. Interesting. Well, it's, I mean, it's definitely more, yeah. it's a little, I mean, it's less, yeah, you watch Encounter at Farpoint, and it's kind of like, wow, really? Space jellyfish. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is a bit more sensible, I think, as far as. Well, well it, it's not even the space jellyfish. It, it's more just like, um, e- even with the, the stilted exposition we get in this mm-hmm. uh, about the characters and the situation, uh I, I felt like a lot of that was woven together a bit better, whereas with Encounter at Farpoint, I felt like the exposition and introduction of character was just like, and now it's time for this character. <laughs> and now it's time for this character. Yeah. And uh, it, it it dragged on a bit before we got to any action. The, this sort of moved, it flowed a little bit better. Um, that could also just be a result of, you know, the editing a little, a little more tightly directed in that respect. I would have been um, happier. I mean, and, and uh, this is nitpicking and it's 27 mm. years later. I would have been happier <laughs> going a few more episodes before we knew that Odo was like the only one of his kind and all that stuff. It was mysterious oh, yeah. when like, he's like yeah, a shapeshifter yeah. all of a sudden. And then, you know, for, for him, then in act seven, I guess it is to say, 
here are all the mysteries of me. You know, it would have been right. great to have like maybe right. a couple of episodes where you're like, okay, well, I get him. I get him. What's up with a shapeshifter? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it might have been kind of, but maybe that's expecting too much of the audience. Maybe, you know, if you get two episodes in and they haven't explained, maybe they feel like they're missing something or they have missed yeah. something. I don't know. It's like I say, it's a nitpick. I mean, yes, it's well produced. It's well done. Um, I, I wish that part hadn't been there, but there are other parts that we need to get to like the messages, John, what messages did you pick up from a emissary? Well, you know, Ken, sometimes it's, it's about the journey inside. And, uh, sometimes it's also about the journey outside, uh, and maybe literally into a wormhole. Yes. Um, and and hopefully those things dramatically intertwine. Um, look, I, I know that I'm being funny about it, but this is a show that sets up people in transition, um, new location, new political structure, new challenges, literally a new body for Dax. Um, but before they get into any of that uh, about uh, the mission at hand, it's about, um, you know, introducing this guy, Cisco, who comes from this traumatic thing and is trying to build a new life for him and his son. Hmm. Um so I, I I respect that 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 this is a show where the message is essentially what he spells out to the aliens. He, he, here's who we are. This is what we're trying to do um, as humanity. But as a person, here's what I'm trying to do. You know, I, I'm trying to use all my experience mm-hmm. that got me to this point to make good decisions about going forward. Um, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. And, it, and it's a nice statement piece for the show, but it's a really nice statement piece for the character. Uh, how about you? Well, it's one that we kept talking about a lot towards the end of TNG. And I don't know if it's intentional or not, or if this is just the way I'm, I've been seeing things lately. But I, I felt like there's a whole be in the now thing again mm-hmm. um, from the aliens who have no concept of past or future. Right. The ones in the wormhole mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to sort of this message of not being controlled by what's happened to you or being controlled by what you've been. Uh, Cisco lost his wife and that has been that's been what he's been. He's been a widower for the past three years and he'll always be a mm-hmm. widower. But that's but that's what he's been. That's been his ID yeah. at this point. Uh, Picard was locutus. It was really interesting to see Picard have to confront that in a way. And, you know. We've said it before, and I don't guess we'll get a chance to say it again, but it, 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 it gets repetitive to say what a great actor Patrick Stewart is. But boy, yeah. the change that happens to him. Like the second he's like, oh, we know each other? Yes, we met at Wolf 359. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. like watching yeah. Patrick Stewart, like, you know, change and, and close so much. But Patrick Stewart is not, I mean, we've seen him sort of uh, through TNG. We've seen him sort of deal with, you know, what happened as Locutus. He's not being held b- back by the fact that he was Locutus that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kira has been a fighter. She's going to have to be more. Quark has been a rogue. He is now expected to be more. And I would imagine, I would imagine that we're still going to see uh, Benjamin deal with the loss of his wife. And that was, it, it, I know I said the only thing I would fault him on. The one other thing that I always have a problem with is when you get to the aha moment in a movie, that seems to make everything okay. Mm. I don't think Ferris Bueller's day off ended as well for Cameron Fry as it ended for Ferris Bueller. Oh, no. Cameron has his big moment where he's like, no, my dad's going to have to face me. Well, yeah. And the fact that you wrecked a Porsche in the backyard. 
we always sort of treat that like, oh, Mal, something great happened to Cameron. Well, no. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. And it's sort of the same kind of thing for Cisco here. Like, you know, why do you exist here? And now Cisco understands it. But we don't even, like, we see him crying. And the next thing we see, he is smiling coming back through the wormhole. Right? Yeah. I don't imagine everything is actually fine for him now. But, boy, was that a quick turnaround. But, I mean, it's still, I would say, you know, uh, yeah, the be in the now and don't be controlled by what you've been. Um, not saying it again as a joke, but saying it for real. What's past is prologue. It is a lead up to what is next. What happened is not what you are. What happened, it's like Cisco said, what happened is what informs what happens next. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out much more at roddenberry.com, and you can find all of our podcasts under podcast.roddenberry.com. You'll find Mission Log. You'll find Mission Log Live. You'll find Priority One, The Trek Files, and Women at Warp. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, you can check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. This is what I get for not reading ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. It sounds like we've been promoing this the whole time. Uh, Next week, funny enough, past prologue. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I feel for Captain Picard in this episode. You lead one, ruthless, cybernetic army, in a crusade to destroy your home world. And they never let you forget. transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 